I'm sure that if you've ever been to a fair or a theme park that you've seen one of those booths set up with the person, uh, the artist there drawing caricatures of people um, for a certain price. A caricature is an image, a, a rendering, a painting, a picture. It's an image of an original, but it's distorted in some way. It's, it's not quite right. And what happens in those booths is the artist will take some feature of your face that is rather prominent and will highlight that feature and draw it extra large or extra, extra noticeable so that the caricature comes out humorous. But that word caricature, we often use it in that way to talk about something that's, that's funny, but it's used a lot of times in a darker sense. Maybe you... You know, as a society, we'll find a, a house uh, where a human being is, is hoarding things and is living in filth, and we'll say something like, they were living like an animal. It, it's a caricature. The way they're living is a caricature of what it means to be a real and true human being, a distorted image of a human, a human life. Now, I want you to keep that word caricature and that darker sense of that word in mind as I read this quote to you about the impact of sin and evil in our world. We may say that sin and evil always have the character of a caricature, that is, of a distorted image that nevertheless embodies certain recognizable features. A human being after the fall, though a travesty of humanity, is still a human being, not an animal. A humanistic school is still a school. A broken relationship is still a relationship. Muddled thinking is still thinking. The ultimate distortion, caricature that sin and evil have brought into our lives is death. Humans were not made to live this way, with the end being our bodies going back into the ground like this. It's not meant to go this way. According to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26, the last enemy, and it's definitely an enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's a distortion of what it means to be a human being. And last week, we began the, the study, our, our study of the story of Lazarus in John 11. And this is a story where Jesus confronts death, the greatest and last enemy that we have head on, and he exposes it for the caricature that it is. And certainly this story points forward to what's going to happen at the end of the Gospel of John with Christ's resurrection. But for now, we're in John 11 as we make our way through this Gospel and Last week, we started looking at five characteristics of this enemy, this caricature death, in light of the coming of Christ. The first one of these is that there is a purpose to, to death. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 11, we find out sort of the setting of the story. There's this man, Lazarus, who's the brother of Mary and Martha. He is sick, and his sisters send word to Jesus. They live close to Jerusalem. Jesus has exited the premises and headed, at, headed out east of the Jordan River. So they send word to him that Lazarus is ill, and they're hoping that he will come and will heal Lazarus. 
And when Jesus hears word of this and gets the, the message, he says that Lazarus is suffering and ultimately his death will serve God's purposes. They will ultimately bring God glory. So there is a purpose to all of this in that it highlights Christ's glory and God's glory. The second characteristic of death is that it is pervasive in our lives. So after hearing of Lazarus's sickness, Jesus, it says, specifically stays for two more days in the place where he was. And the text is very clear that he, he heard them, he heard the report, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he stayed for two more days because of his love for them. And then when he had finally waited the appropriate time in order to have them wait and for this miracle to take place, he decides to journey with his disciples back to Judea. And we find out that when he gets to Judea, death is what is going to await, it seems like, everyone there. That's the expectation, at least. Judea becomes the place of death. The disciples question him, if they're trying to stone you when we were just there, why are we going back into the mouth of the lion? Why are we going back to Judea? The disciples anticipate that it's a place of death. And Jesus even says, if you look at verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So all of this points to the pervasiveness of death in our lives. It's something that you are going to face, and I am going to face as well. It is everywhere. Third characteristic. Even though it's everywhere and it is pervasive, death is provisional. There is a sense in which death is temporary. So Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, which is a town about two miles east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And at this point when he arrives, his friend Lazarus has already been dead for four days. That is repeated twice. We'll see that again, that he's been dead for four days. And the point is, he is clearly dead. There's no faking this. He's gone and has been gone for a while. And yet, as Martha meets Jesus, she comes out to meet him as he makes his way to Bethany, the village, and to their home and the, and the tomb where Lazarus is. We find out that Jesus fully expects all death, not just Lazarus's, to be provisional or temporary. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying that through him and as we trust in him and believe in him, death becomes less than an enemy in some ways. It becomes provisional. It becomes temporary for us. Today we're going to pick up the story where Martha leaves Jesus after affirming who he is in verse 27 there and heads back to her home and tells Mary that Jesus has arrived and now she comes out to meet Jesus and the story takes another direction here. This is our fourth characteristic of death and it is that death is provoking and this is in verses 28 through 37. Now maybe you haven't thought of this word before, maybe you have, maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one and it was Frustrating, not just grieving, but, but frustrating for this to happen. 
But in verses 28 to 37, you're, I think you're going to see this very clearly as an appropriate response to death. In this text, you're going to notice a variety of reactions to death, which is always the case. But some of the strongest and maybe the most strong reactions to death come from Jesus himself. And all of these reactions suggest to us that death is not a welcome friend, but is an intruder into our world and into our lives. And we rightly should think of it that way. Let's begin in verses 28 to 30. Pick up the story here. When she had said this, Martha, referring back to verse 27, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Martha and Mary trade places. Mary goes out to meet Jesus, but she doesn't head there alone. Look at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep here. Martha's conversation with Mary happened in private. Mary gets up to leave. And now we find out that there are a number of Jews who are there with them in the house, and their goal is to console. They've obviously had a loved one die, and so they are present and are trying to to reach out to them and to help them. Now, we don't know exactly who these people are, but there's probably a mixture of friends who genuinely care for them and love them, and there's probably a mixture of hired professional mourners who are there. Yes, that was a thing culturally at this time. It was expected in this culture that even a poor family And Mary and Martha, we'll find out later in John 12, Mary has expensive ointment. This is not a poor family. Most likely this is a prominent and wealthy family. But even a poor family at this time was expected to hire two flute players and, I'm not making this up, a professional wailing woman. Two flute players and a professional wailing woman. How does one get into that line of work? Particular skill set must be there to be involved in that. Regardless, they're wealthy, and so there's probably a lot more than one professional wailing woman and two flute players at this, and it seems like there's a whole crowd of people who have come, both friends and hired mourners. They go out to meet Jesus with Mary. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is a common refrain, right? We're meant to to see this as the perspective that everyone has in this passage. Mary says this. Martha had said something very similar earlier. It's not that they don't trust Jesus. They're confident in his ability to work miracles. They've seen him do it. They understand who he is, as Martha affirms in verse 27 but they just don't think he can raise someone from the dead. It's too late at this point. You also notice in verse 33, or I'm sorry, in verse 32 there, that she falls at his feet. And we'll find out in verse 33 that she's weeping. Obviously, this is an emotional moment for her. 
She's thinking about the possibilities of what if Jesus would have been there. Her brother has been dead now for four days. She comes out to meet Jesus and upon seeing him, falls at his feet and is overcome with grief. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, right, she's weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. It's an emotional moment for everyone. Look what happens. The end of verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus watches this display of grief from Mary, from her friends and others who are there with her, And the passage uses two words to describe Jesus's reaction to this. And we need to camp here for a couple of minutes and find out exactly what is happening. So before we get to the specifics of these words, I want to zoom out a bit and talk about Jesus's life and the way that he experiences emotions as a human being. Maybe you don't think about this a lot, But Jesus, of course, was a full 100% human being, and that's why he can pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. He comes and is 100% God and 100% man, and as a man, he experiences a full and wide range of human emotions. Jesus was not a stoic. We'll see in a few minutes here. A couple of Theologians of the past have talked about this and have pointed out how integral this is to his humanity. John Calvin said, certainly those who imagine that the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not truly and seriously acknowledge him to be a man. He had human emotions. B.B. Warfield wrote a a whole article on this. It's very, very helpful. It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. The word that is key here is the word sinless. Whatever emotions we find in Jesus and that he exhibits were free from the distortion and the stain of sin. And that's hard for us to get our minds around sometimes because we think of emotions as intruding into our lives. If I could just stop feeling this way or stop having such strong emotions, she's so emotional, right? I mean, we use those phrases as if emotions are a bad thing, but emotions are not evil. They're not wrong. God has given us to them as a gift, a gift to help us interact with the world and even to help us perceive the situation correctly. Emotions are not to be ignored and they're not to be removed from us as if we could do that anyway. But the key part here of Jesus's emotional life is that he experienced emotions in a way that was free from sin. In other words, his experience of emotions was always right. He always saw the situation correctly and his emotions matched or corresponded to God's truth and God's view of reality. So he felt the way he should have felt. When he saw a beautiful sunrise, he felt joy in that. Because you should feel joy when you see a beautiful sunrise, if you've ever been up that early. It's a wonderful thing. So what's he experiencing here? With all of that as background, what is Jesus experiencing here? It may surprise you to see what he feels. First of all, it says here that he was deeply moved. 
It's a little bit of a, a vague translation of this word. The word actually points to Jesus being angry or indignant in this moment. It's not just that he was feeling something deeply. We'll get to that in a second. But this word means that there was an element of anger to what he was feeling. There was frustration in him, indignation. The same word is used in, I'll just give you a couple of passages. You don't need to look them up. But Mark chapter 1 and verse 43, Jesus sternly warns a man and sends him away. Right? There, there's, a, there's a sharpness to this. It's also used in Mark 14.5, not of Jesus, but of the reaction of a group of men who scold a woman who anointed Jesus with costly ointment. They're, they're angry at her. They're indignant at her. They're frustrated with her for wasting this ointment that she, she has poured on Jesus. There's a variety of ways in which this word has been translated. Let me give them to you. He groaned. He was intensely moved. A deep anger welled up. He was angry. He became perturbed. So all of that points to the fact that Jesus was angry or indignant in this moment. The second word there, you'll see in verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Greatly troubled gets to the intensity of the emotion. This is not something that is just quickly passing. This is a deep feeling that he has inside in his spirit. He was experiencing as a human being in this moment inward turmoil. He is unsettled. So what you get here in this story, the death of his friend, is you get Jesus being extremely agitated, angry, and upset. Now this is not talking about Jesus experiencing grief in this moment. We'll get to that in verse 35. Why is he mad here? Why is he unsettled? Why is he indignant here? Jesus is indignant at the havoc that death has wrought in his good world. He is angry at the enemy that has broken into his house and stirred things up. He's upset over death being a reality in this world. But anger isn't the only emotion that he experiences. Look further in the story, verses 34 and 35. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then every child's favorite verse to memorize, Jesus wept. He doesn't weep here out of despair. This is not a wailing because it's out of his control. He's weeping here out of lament. He recognizes the damage that death has brought into this world, and he laments this reality. This isn't as it should be. Look at verses 36 and 37. So the Jews watching him said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, carrying on the same storyline that we've seen, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. Now let's talk for a second here about how Jesus's emotional, as a human being, response to this informs the way we think about death and the way we respond to death in our lives. Grief 
sadness, and even frustration that death is a part of our normal experiences, frustration over the loss of a loved one, are perfectly acceptable emotions to feel. It is not wrong to feel those things. Why? Because those emotions point you to the unnatural imposition that death is in this world. It shouldn't be like this. And so there's a sense in which we hate it. I hate that this is how it is. I hate that there's death and there's separation. I don't want it to be like this. And so grief and anger over that are perfectly appropriate. Now, let me get to funerals here for a second. I know there's a sense in which at Christian funerals, we want to celebrate the person's life. And you want to celebrate all that God did through that individual and in that individual. And there's, there is that element that is true for a Christian, right? We grieve. We don't grieve as those with no hope. So there is an element of celebration there. But don't skip over the grief part of it. You don't have to do that. You don't have to avoid the tears and the grief and the frustration over the way that death has separated you from your loved one. Our grieving involves hope, and that's why it's Christian grieving and Christian anger and frustration over the imposition that death is in our lives, but it's real and it's genuine grieving over the loss of a loved one. It's not despair, but it is lament. Because this is not how it should be. And all of this, I think, points us to the reality of Christ's and God the Father's great love and affection for his people. Look at this. Sometimes we are tempted to think that God does not care. That Jesus does not care. We could wrongly apply the knowledge of God's sovereignty as follows. God has foreordained these events for our good, so we cannot let them bother us. We must stay above the flow, must be emotionally aloof because everything is going to turn out for God's glory. This way of thinking is a bad application of the knowledge of God to our own lives. And often we project our own coldness onto God himself as if the fact that God has written the end of the story has made him emotionally uninterested in the plot or characters. And I think that's what we see here from Jesus. As we see Jesus, we see what God is like as well. And so here's the point for you and your expression of emotions as you respond to situations. Our emotions, like Christ, should always match the reality of God's rule and reign over our lives. He's in control. They should always match the truth of Christ's work on the cross and of his resurrection. And that's why I think Paul says we grieve, but not as those without hope. We see the current situation and sin and death and evil and injustice and we say, it's, it shouldn't be like this. And there's a frustration to that. And I hate the loss of a loved one. And yet, at the same time, that grieving takes place within the context of God's ultimate victory over death. We face the brokenness of the world. We hate how sin and death have bent it out of shape. But we don't stay there. Ultimately, we know what will happen, and that brings us to our last characteristic of death. Verses 38 to 44. Death is, through Christ, stripped of its power. It has none over us 
in the same way anymore. Look at verse 38. Jesus continues to feel these emotions. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Of course, you know the stone is a common way of, in this culture, of covering up the tomb. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. She's not wrong here. Martha, I'm going to guess, didn't know the science behind this statement, but it is true. There is science on this now. You can find out about it if you Google it, which I did this week. It's horrifying what happens to a dead body almost immediately. Horrible things that I won't talk about because lunch is coming up here soon. But she's not wrong. And Almost immediately it starts to happen, and by day four, it is well into the process, especially in a climate like this. It's bad, and she understands that. And what this does here, again, is it points us to the power of death. Nothing Lazarus could do about this here. Death is our greatest enemy, and it points us to how significant this miracle will be. He's not passed out in the tomb. He has been dead for four days, and his body is undergoing the corruption that will happen to all of us. Jesus points that out in verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's been Jesus's point the entire time, right? Even as he responds correctly emotionally to this and weeps and is angry over what death has wrought in his good world, the whole time he has been confident in God's purposes for his glory through Lazarus. Look back at verses, verse 4. We'll start there. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, ultimately death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 23, he hints at this again. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And this miracle here, let me remind you, this sign is not just meant to point us to God's power. Yes, it does that, but it teaches us about the ministry of Christ and about his character and about what his work will accomplish for us. It shows us that he has true life in himself, and his life will always conquer death, and it will bring true life to those who are in him, who are united and connected to him, who are those who believe on him. He is the resurrection and the life. And so the people moved the stone, probably somewhat hesitantly, but they moved the stone and Jesus prays. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Notice here, he doesn't ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead, does he? 
What does he do? Instead, he prays for those who are watching. We've got this crowd. We've got Mary. We've got Martha. Got Lazarus. He's praying for their benefit. He wants them to make the right connection as to what this teaches about him as the Messiah. What does this do? One of the things it does is it confirms his relationship with the Father. He says that. That they may believe that you sent me. He's been talking about this throughout his entire ministry, and this miracle points to that relationship. He prays for those around him, which is interesting because this prayer evokes Elijah praying at Mount Carmel when he had the battle with the prophets of Baal. You remember this? What Elijah prays there? It's very similar to what Jesus prays. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. In other words, from Elijah's prayer, from Jesus's prayer, we understand that God wants his glory to be displayed. He's a God who is interested in revealing himself and making himself known. And so he acts in the world in order to let us know who he is and what his glory is like. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, when he prayed, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm sure you have heard the point before if you've been in church at any, for any length of time and have heard someone teach on this that he had to use Lazarus' name here because if he didn't use Lazarus' name, there would have been a whole lot more dead people coming out of tombs. Fair enough. But notice the method by which the dead Lazarus man is raised here. How does this take place? How do the dead receive life? It's the word of God. It's God's voice. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5? Let me show you this on the screen. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Certainly Jesus is anticipating the final resurrection, but I had to think he had in mind Lazarus here. There's an hour coming when, and it's the same method, the dead will hear his voice and they'll come out. Jesus made the point to Martha earlier in this, what, that if you believe, do you believe these things? Do you hear my word and what I'm saying to you and believe that I am one with the Father, that I have been sent by the Father? Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you may die physically, but you will live ultimately. And the point here is that they they hear his word and believe in it and trust him. And God's word is the means by which the spiritually dead are raised to life. They receive spiritual life. The deadness that they are born into, spiritually speaking, in their sin is no more. And life happens through the word of God. And one day, as Jesus points out here in John 5, their resurrected bodies 
will be received through the word of God. The word is the trigger point here. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, right? Born to new life, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, how? Through the living and abiding word of God. That's the method by which this happens. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Notice in this passage that the word of God is both living and abiding. Living and abiding. It remains forever, and that's the overall point of this, is the word of God remains, but in its steadfastness, in its continuance, the word of God is not like an artifact that is sitting cold and lifeless on a shelf in a museum. Yeah, it's old and it's there and it continues to stay steadfastly. That's not the word of God. It abides, but it is also living. It is active. It influences the word of God. The scriptures, when they are opened and read and taught, they shape things. They bring conviction. They bring repentance. God uses his word today to bring new life to people. And he will use his word one day to bring resurrected bodies to people as well. So this sign of Lazarus certainly points us to God's word being the instrument that brings spiritual life. But it also points us to Jesus's resurrection. I want to show you this in verse 44 by the differences between Lazarus coming out of the tomb and Jesus coming out of the tomb later in John. Look at verse 44. The man who had died... Once again, making sure you understand, he had died, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine being the guys that had to walk up to Lazarus and unbind him? He was bound still as he came out in his grave clothes, right? And I think this points us to his still having an earthly body. Right? He's raised to life from the dead, but he's not raised to his resurrected body. He will die again. He is still in a body that is subject to death. But what do you find when Jesus rises from the dead later in the Gospel of John? Jesus rises on his own. He rises and rolls away the stone from the front of the tomb on his own. He and the Father and he places his grave clothes neatly folded in a pile. Doesn't need them anymore because he is no longer subject to death in his resurrected body. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, already opened. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Jesus has a different resurrection than Lazarus here. He rose to a new body, a resurrection body that is not subject to death or decay or destruction like this body that we live in now is. And what the resurrection of Jesus tells us is that the curse of sin with death as its ultimate judgment has been broken once and for all. It's done. It is powerless 
through Christ. Never to have dominion over his people again. One author put it like this. Death shook the universe when it put Jesus into the grave, but was reduced to nothing when he came out. The resurrection makes death impotent, vanquishing its only tool of breeding and preying upon our fears of disillusion, destruction, and the unknown. And this is glorious good news. And it is the good news, the word that Peter was talking about that was preached to you. It is the good news of the gospel. Death has been once for all defeated, overcome through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have new life and can anticipate anticipate resurrected bodies if we believe him, believe in him, and are joined to him through faith in his person and work. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this text. We're thankful for the way it points us to the victory that Jesus will have over death later in the Gospel of John. We're so thankful for the way in which this encourages us, takes some of the the fear of the unknown out of the prospect of death, that death really is powerless. It has lost its sting, its authority, because of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use this passage in our lives this week to live in light of and because of the new life that we have in you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your power and your victory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.